Good morning. This is Alan Carroll at Carroll Pharmacy in Smithfield, and we are proud to bring you Hope for Today, a program we hope might help you, inspire you, or encourage you and give you hope for today. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Welcome back to another edition of Hope for Today. Like many of you out there listening today, I'm sure that you watched on television or listened on the radio to the funeral service of Billy Graham. And I was one of those people who did as well. So I'm going to bring you some stuff that was some of the scripture from his funeral. But I also have gathered some other information that I've had and that has come across my desk. The first thing I'm going to read is part of an article that was in the Wall Street Journal. William Franklin Graham Jr. was born outside Charlotte, North Carolina on November the 7th. 1918, and grew up on a dairy farm. His parents were austere Christians, and Mr. Graham often told how his father gave him a lifelong aversion to alcohol by forcing him to drink beer until he vomited. Mr. Graham found his life's path at 16 years old when he attended a revival meeting in Charlotte where the speakers included famed evangelist Mordecai Ham. And this is Billy's words, I thought, this is for me. I'm a sinner. God loves me. Mr. Graham drew national attention in 1949 during a Los Angeles revival. An estimated 350,000 people came out to see him over eight weeks at a mammoth tent dubbed the Canvas Cathedral. Press Lord William Hurst ordered his editors to puff Graham, and newspapers across the country carried accounts of the young preacher. Eight years later... His summer crusade in New York attracted more than two million, packing Madison Square Garden and Yankee Stadium and Times Square. The New York crusade cemented Mr. Graham's reputation as the country's foremost evangelist and crystallized negative critiques among his fellow Christians. Mr. Graham avoided the excesses that undid some other evangelist. Under an organizational charter from the late 1940s, he agreed to a modest salary, and he pledged to refrain from ever being alone with a woman who wasn't his wife. Although he concluded his career of religious campaigns after 2005, Mr. Graham never officially retired. Appearing frail, he returned to New York in June of 2005 for a final crusade, a week at Flushing Meadow Park in Queens. Asked by Time magazine about retirement in 1993, he said, The New Testament says nothing of apostles who retired and took it easy. And then I want to read you something from the one-year Christian history book by Michael and Sharon Rustin, and this is the March 1st reading. On March 1st, 1973, Billy Graham was at a White House state dinner to honor Prime Minister Golda Meir of Israel. A family friend tells the story. Just before the 8 o'clock dinner, the Grahams mingled with the other guests in the East Room. When Billy greeted the Prime Minister in the receiving line, she reached up and kissed him. At dinner, Myer sat between Nixon and Billy at table 12. Ruth sat at table 9, where she watched the proceedings with a bit of amusement. A Jewish woman sitting at Ruth's table stared suspiciously at Billy and Golda Myer, not realizing that the evangelist's wife was sitting inches away from her. What is Billy Graham doing sitting next to Madame Golda? The woman asked, of no one in particular. Do you suppose that he is proselytizing her? Ruth replied, I would put my money on Madame Golda Meir. But never fear, when we get home tonight, I'll straighten him out. Billy Graham and President Richard Nixon's friendship began after Nixon's mother told her son of the powerful young evangelist she had just heard preach. 
Nixon was in law school at the time, and the two did not meet until 1950 when Graham was in Washington, D.C., and was introduced to Nixon, a freshman congressman from California. They had become good friends by the time John F. Kennedy defeated Nixon in his first bid for the White House. Nixon often sought out Graham for counsel and prayer. Later, when Nixon did become president, Graham preached at some White House worship services. But in January of 1973, at Nixon's second inauguration, Graham told his wife Ruth, The president does not look like himself. I've never seen him look or act that way. He later wrote, Nixon was terribly preoccupied and hardly seemed to know we were present. I could tell by his eyes that he was under some severe strain. At the time, I had no idea what was about to come, nor did any of his other friends. Shortly after the dinner with Prime Minister Meir, the Watergate scandal broke. Graham found the news, quote, so discouraging that it almost made me physically sick, end quote. Graham was one of the few who distinguished between the sinner, his friend Nixon, and the sin of the Watergate cover-up. But the distinction was lost on many who condemned Graham for refusing to condemn Nixon. Graham remained loyal but Nixon wouldn't return his phone calls. When Nixon died in April of 1994, his family asked Graham to preach at his funeral. Graham was honored and recalled another funeral that gave him hope that he would see his friend Nixon again in heaven. Before his mother's funeral service, in other words, before Richard Nixon's mother's funeral service, he had talked with Richard Nixon for a few minutes about his mother's faith. And this is what Graham said, Dick, do you have that same kind of faith? And Richard Nixon said, I believe I do. He said this quietly. That was his Quaker way to keep piety private. And then Billy Graham said to Nixon, that's the only way you can be guided in life, and it's the only way you can get to heaven. That's what Billy said, and then he prayed for Nixon. Nixon later said that was one of the great moments of his life, and Billy believed that he meant it. And the months of no communication in the wake of Watergate, it turned out that the silence was motivated by love for a friend. After months of long waiting, Graham learned Nixon had told his aides, Don't let Billy Graham near me. I don't want him tarred with Watergate. And so then in the reflections it says, How do you think Graham felt when Nixon wouldn't talk to him after the scandal broke? Could you separate the sinner from the sin and remain faithful to a friend in a situation like that? It turned out that they were both faithful to each other in their own way. And then one thing I'd like to read you, and you who have listened for a while have heard this before, but I love it. Uh, This is something Billy Graham said. In January of 2000, leaders in Charlotte, North Carolina, invited their favorite son, Billy Graham, to a luncheon in his honor. Billy initially hesitated to accept the invitation because he struggles with Parkinson's disease. But the Charlotte leaders said, we don't expect a major address. Come on and let us here honor you. So he agreed. After wonderful things were said about him, Dr. Graham stepped to the rostrum, looked at the crowd, and said, I'm reminded today of Albert Einstein, the great physicist, who this month has been honored by Time magazine as the man of the century. Einstein was once traveling from Princeton on a train when the conductor came down the aisle punching the tickets of every passenger. When he came to Einstein, Einstein reached in his vest pocket. He couldn't find his ticket, so he reached in his trouser pockets. It wasn't there, so he looked in his briefcase, but couldn't find it. Then he looked in the seat beside him. He still couldn't find it. The conductor said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. Einstein nodded appreciatively. The conductor continued down the aisle, punching tickets. 
As he was ready to move to the next car, he turned around and saw the great physicist down on his hands and knees looking under his seat for his ticket. The conductor rushed back and said, Dr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein, don't worry. I know who you are. No problem. You don't need a ticket. I'm sure you bought one. Einstein looked at him and said, Young man, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. Having said that, Billy Graham continued, See this suit I'm wearing? It's a brand new suit. My wife, my children, and my grandchildren are telling me I've gotten a little slovenly in my old age. I used to be a bit more fastidious, so I went out and bought a new suit for this luncheon and one more occasion. You know what that occasion is? This is the suit in which I'll be buried. But when you hear I'm dead, I don't want you to immediately remember the suit I'm wearing. I want you to remember this. I not only know who I am, I also know where I'm going. And as we have heard many times, we do know where Billy Graham has gone, and that is to heaven. At the funeral today, uh, Don Wilton, who was his pastor at, I think it was First Baptist Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina, I'm going to read you the scripture that he read this today, and it was from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. And of course, I'm reading from the Life Application Bible. But God is so rich in mercy, He loved us so much that even though we were spiritually dead and doomed by our sins, He gave us back our lives again when He raised Christ from the dead. Only by His undeserved favor have we ever been saved, and lifted us up from the grave into glory along with Christ, where we sit with Him in the heavenly realms, all because of what Christ Jesus did. And now God can always point to us as examples of how very, very rich His kindness is, as shown in all He has done for us through Jesus Christ. Because of His kindness, you have been saved through trusting Christ. And even trusting is not of yourselves. It, too, is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good we have done, so none of us can take any credit for it. So that was um, from Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. And then Anne Graham Lotz was reading from 1 Thessalonians. And let me get to that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And she was reading from verse 13 through verses 18. So here we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And now, dear brothers, I want you to know what happens to a Christian when he dies, so that when it happens, you will not be full of sorrow, as those are who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and then came back to life again, we can also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him all the Christians who have died. I can tell you this directly from the Lord, that we who are still living when the Lord returns will not rise to meet him ahead of those who are in their graves. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a mighty shout and with the soul-stirring cry of the archangel and the great trumpet call of God. And the believers who are dead will be the first to rise to meet the Lord. Then we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be called up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and remain with him forever. So comfort and encourage each other with this news. When the son, Ned Graham, got up to speak, he just said that his father, Billy Graham, was fat. And he said the F was faithful, the A was available, and the T was teachable. So that's fat, faithful, available, and teachable. Michael Smith sang the song, Above All. Bill Gaither in the vocal band sang, Because He Lives. I will get on to some other comments in just a minute. I want to read you this 
column that was in the February 25th News and Observer, and this was the final column before his death. And many of you who maybe would get the Charlotte Observer would be able to read uh, questions and answers. People had written Billy for years, the questions, and Billy would answer the questions. So this is the final question and answer in the final column. The question to Mr. Graham was, how would you like to be remembered? And this is Billy Graham's answer. I hope I will be remembered as someone who was faithful, faithful to God, faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and faithful to the calling God gave me, not only as an evangelist, but as a husband, father, and friend. I'm sure I've failed in many ways, but I take comfort in Christ's promise of forgiveness, and I take comfort also in God's ability to take even our most imperfect efforts and use them for His glory. By the time you read this, I will be in heaven, and as I write this, I'm looking forward with great anticipation to the day when I will be in God's presence forever. I'm convinced that heaven is far more glorious than anything we can possibly imagine right now, and I look forward not only to its wonder and peace, but also to the joy of being reunited with those who have gone there before me, especially my dear wife, Ruth. The Bible says, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. But I won't be in heaven because I've preached to large crowds or because I've tried to live a good life. I'll be in heaven for one reason. Many years ago, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to make our forgiveness possible and rose again from the dead to give us eternal life. Do you know you will go to heaven when you die? You can by committing your life to Jesus Christ today. And from John 3:16, this is how he closed his final column. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that was part of um, what Franklin Graham said in his remarks. He quoted that verse, and he said, I believe if my daddy was here today, he would ask you, if this was your funeral, would you be in heaven? So that's certainly something that we need to think about because Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one would come to the Father except through him. And I want to read you this. Finally home, this came to me yesterday from the Billy Graham Association, and these are the words of Billy Graham. One of the Bible's greatest truths is that we were not meant for this world alone. We were meant for heaven, and heaven is our ultimate home. And this is what he says. This is, I guess it's probably from his book. This is from the, the Heaven Answer book by Billy Graham. If you and I could sit together for a few minutes to talk about the subject of heaven, I would very much want to share the following thought with you. The Bible has much to say about the brevity of life and the necessity of preparing for eternity. Someday this life will come to an end. But what then? The Bible is clear. Ahead of us is eternity either with God in heaven or in that place of utter loneliness and despair the Bible calls hell. But we do not need to fear the future because God has provided the way for us to be saved and to be with him throughout eternity. That way is Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us on the cross and then conquered sin and hell by his resurrection from the dead. I am convinced that we will never be prepared to live until we are prepared to die. God has a plan for us right now, and life's greatest joy comes from knowing Him and living for Him each day. If you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, or if you are unsure of your eternal destiny, I invite you to turn to Him now. 
By a simple prayer of repentance and faith, you can give your life to Him today. Perhaps the following prayer will help you make your commitment. And here's the prayer. O God, I know I am a sinner. I am sorry for my sins, and I want to turn from them. I trust Jesus Christ alone as my Savior, and I confess Him as my Lord. From this moment on, I want to serve Him and follow Him in the fellowship of His church. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you sincerely prayed that prayer, God heard you, and you are now part of His family forever. Your sins have been forgiven, and His Spirit now lives within you to help you live a new life. And someday He will welcome you into heaven, your final home. And I want to read you this verse at the end, because we've already quoted John 3.16, but as I close today, I'm thinking about Billy Graham. This is from Revelation 14.13. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. They are blessed indeed, for they will rest from all their toils and trials, for their good deeds follow them. In closing, I want to read you something that Anne Graham Lotz wrote in the book, Led to Believe, which were inspiring words from Billy Graham and personal stories for those whose lives he touched, and that was the 25th anniversary of The Cove. So anyway, this is the the title of her message is My Father's Message. This is by Anne Graham Lotz. The week following my 17th birthday, my high school held the baccalaureate, a Sunday service for members of the senior class, their families, and friends. I knew it would be a memorable day for several reasons, one of them being that my father was guest speaker. As I ran out the door of my parents' home, I told them I would meet them at the auditorium where the baccalaureate was to be held, and then jumped into my mother's little VW and floored the accelerator as I dashed down the winding mountain road that led from the house. I knew I was running late, but I had promised to pick up some of my friends to give them a ride to the service. As I rounded one hairpin curve, I came face to face with a great big white Buick Riviera coming up the mountain. It was too late to avoid a collision, so I slammed on my brakes and jerked hard to the right. The VW went up a steep embankment, but not before that big Buick had crashed into the side of my mother's VW. I can still hear the crunch of the metal and the breaking of glass. As the rear wheels spun in the dirt, I tried to get out, but the door was smashed, so I had to climb over the stick shift and exit from the passenger side. The lady who had driven the white Buick was standing beside her car with an astonished, somewhat stunned expression on her face. I recognized her as our neighbor who was coming up to stay at our house while we were all at the baccalaureate. I immediately apologized and asked her help in pulling the fender off the wheel so I could continue my journey. Before I drove away, I pleaded, Remember, don't say anything to my parents. Driving very slowly, I picked up my friends and arrived late to the baccalaureate. I parked the VW with the smashed side against some bushes in case somebody walked by and then asked my mother, What happened to your car? I ran to take my place in the line of seniors that were already marching into the auditorium. As I took my place on the sixth row from the front, with hair disheveled and mascara streaks on my face, I sought to look very generic in my cap and gown. I don't remember much about the service except that my father marched across the platform, looked straight at me, and then said to everybody in that packed Anderson auditorium, Anne has been a model daughter. She has never caused her mother or me any problems. It has been pure joy to be her father. We love her very much. That was the end of his quote. Anne prayed that she would die. 
She says, as I bolted for the door when the service concluded, somebody grabbed me on the shoulder and said, Ann, your father wants to see you. Certain that judgment was about to fall, I went out to the front of the building where he was. He was surrounded by newsmen and cameras, all wanting to take a picture of my father and me on this wonderful and special day. The next day, the Asheville Citizen Times ran a front-page picture of my father adjusting my cap. The mascara streaks that ran down my face seemed to indicate that I was just emotionally overcome on this wonderful day. Finally, I slipped away, returned my friends to their homes, and went very slowly back up the mountain road to our house. I prayed as I drove, Dear God, please have my daddy anywhere. He can be on the phone. He can be in his study. He can be taking a walk. Just please don't have him where I will have to see him right now because I just have to think this through. I promise I'm going to tell him, just not now. I pulled up into the driveway and carefully positioned the car so the bashed inside was away from the house and anyone inside the house who would happen to look out. I tiptoed up to the front door and opened the screen very carefully so it wouldn't squeak. I slipped inside the front hall, poised to run up the stairs to my room. I paused for a moment to let my eyes adjust from the brilliant sunshine to the darkened interior. When I focused and looked up, my father was standing right there. His piercing blue eyes were directed straight toward me. I hesitated for a moment that is still frozen in time in my mind. Then I ran straight to my father and threw my arms around his neck. As I clung to him, I sobbed. Daddy, I'm so sorry. If you just knew what I'd done, you never would have said all those nice things about me. I told him about my wreck, how I'd driven way too fast and smashed into Miss Pickering's car. I told him it wasn't her fault, it was all mine. As I clung to him and wept on his shoulder... He said four things to me that I will never forget. First, Ann, I knew all about your wreck. Miss Pickering came right up the mountain and told me. I was just waiting for you to tell me. Second, I love you. Third, we can fix the car. Fourth, you are going to be a better driver because of this. At that moment, I realized what an incredibly wonderful father I have. Because on that unforgettable day... My father taught me a life lesson about my relationship with my Heavenly Father. The lesson is this. Sometime over the course of my life's experience, I would be involved in a wreck of some kind, a mistake or failure, where I would get hurt or someone else would. Maybe something in my marriage or my career or my reputation or my relationship with a friend. The wreck might be my own fault or someone else's fault. When that happens, the tendency will be to hide from God or to think that what I've done is so awful that he will turn his back on me. Instead, it's vitally important not to run away from my Heavenly Father, or try to hide from him, or to avoid him, or to deny my responsibility, or to rationalize my behavior. Run to him. I need to throw my arms of faith around him and confess my sin. Just pour out my heart and tell him about the trouble I'm in and the mess I've made. And if I listen very carefully... I will hear my Heavenly Father whispering to my heart, I knew all along about your sin and your mistakes and your failures. I was watching you when you made that mess. I've just been waiting for you to come tell me yourself. I love you. I can fix everything. I can take your smashed up life and put it back together again so that it's better than it was before. And on that day, I learned what an incredibly wonderful Heavenly Father I have too. As I have reflected on my father's worldwide ministry, I have come to realize that what he did for me on that day so long ago, he has done for millions of others. He has always spoken the truth, but clothed it in such grace and love that he has made God attractive 
so that sinners in more than 186 nations around the world have run to the Heavenly Father in confession and repentance, and they have heard Him whisper words of loving forgiveness and restoration. I've known everything about you for so long and have been waiting for you to come to me. I love you. I can fix everything. I can take your messed up life and make it better. You can start over. You can be born again now with me. The message my father practiced in our home on the afternoon of my graduation and the message he has preached from pulpits all over the world is the same. Lives have been changed, not because of my father, but because of his message. It's the message of God's love for sinners. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. to Hope for Today, brought to you each Sunday morning by Carol Pharmacy. We hope the message today has helped and encouraged you. If we can ever help you with your prescriptions, over-the-counter medications, or vaccines, we hope you will come in to our family-owned and operated independent pharmacy, where outstanding customer service is our goal. 